Recently, Dean of the School of Divinity, Dr. Keith Plummer, was asked to endorse a book called The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead, by Chris Martin. Chris is a marketing editor at Moody Publishers and regularly writes and produces content on how Christians should engage with social media, the internet, and each other. After reading The Wolf in Their Pockets, Dr. Plummer was so encouraged by the benefit he believed it could be to the Cairn community and more broadly to the church that he wrote a hearty endorsement for the book and asked to interview Chris on the podcast. Let's join their conversation now. Welcome to Cairn Commons, a biblically minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Cairn University. I've been eagerly looking forward to this conversation with Chris Martin, who is editor of BibleToLife.com and a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. The last time he was on the podcast, we talked about his first book, Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And if you haven't heard that conversation, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Today, we're going to talk about his new book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead, published by Moody Press. Chris, welcome back, and thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back, Keith. It feels like we, I don't remember when we last got together, but it feels like it wasn't that long ago. It's fun to be back and hang out with you. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It seems like relatively recently, and when we talked then, Towards the end, I asked you, are you working on anything? you have anything else coming out? And you mentioned this book. And at that time, I was really, really excited about hearing about it. Could you start out by telling folks, what are you doing here that is beyond what you did in the first book? How do they relate? And who are the audiences that you have in mind? Totally. Yeah. Um, So there's no sort of sequencing between these books. There's This is not a sort of sequel, though I suppose in in some ways, like I kind of think of it that way, but the reader wouldn't necessarily think of it that way. Terms of service. I like to describe terms of service. The first book that was published in February of 22 is kind of like a mirror. The purpose of terms of service, terms of service was written for everyone. In fact, I intentionally wrote it so that even a non-Christian would feel comfortable picking it up. Um, There are Christian themes throughout, but I'm not giving a theology of social media per se. Um, I'm just trying to give some practical ways that we can reflect on our relationship with social media and have a more healthy relationship with social media. And so terms of service, I guess you could say, asks the question, what is my relationship with social media like and what can I do about that? So it's very Mm -hmm. self-reflective and it's really for anyone. The wolf in their pockets is a bit different. Now, it's similar in that it's about our relationship with social media, but frankly, that's about where the similarities end. The wolf in their pockets is less a mirror and I'm trying to think of an image, I'm not sure, more maybe a magnifying glass, if you will, but like not in a bad way. The wolf in their pockets is meant to be less, what is social media doing to me and what can I do about it? And more, what is social media doing to the people that I lead and how can I better lead them given how social media is affecting them? So the biggest response I got, I mean, even before Terms of Service came out in 2022, but certainly after was, man, this is really helpful but I could really use a more specific resource on how to lead in this kind of environment. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really think this book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, is as much a discipleship and leadership book as it is a book about social media. It's really, hey, as a pastor or church leader or even parent, um, this is not a parenting book. A, a parenting book about social media would have its own flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think this is a, applicable to parents. Really, if if you're charged with discipling someone in some way, you may wonder or feel like social media is discipling the people I care about more than I am discipling the people I care about. And I'm not quite sure what to do about that. That's Mm -hmm. what this book is meant to address. So where terms of service was much more kind of introspective, how can I reflect on my relationship with the social internet? This is much more social media is clearly affecting the people I lead and how can I better lead them given that. Right. And there is also an introspective element, though, for the leader, because one of the things that you are very emphatic about is you can't lead where you haven't been and where you're not going yourself. 
And that's one of the things that I really appreciated is that you're also asking leaders to look at how they are engaging with social media. Totally. Yeah. Now, this is a book for leaders. So you could spend an entire book like this caveating. Now, you might be suffering from this, too. You know, so so I, I can only do so much of that without it getting a bit tiresome. But yeah, I mean, like leaders need to examine themselves. Leaders can't lead where they won't go. And, right. and that might sound cheesy or cliche, but I mean, it's true. If And and really, in fact, I even, I think I charge parents specifically a bit in this book, but I, I work in the student ministry at my church. I, I volunteer with the student ministry at my church. I used to be on staff helping with the student ministry, and now I'm, I'm just a, a volunteer in a lay capacity. And I've volunteered in student ministry since I was a high schooler. Um, mm. So for, for a long time now. You know, so a lot of my conversations, both in that context and having written about social media, is like, oh, these kids in their phones or these teens in their phones. I just can't get my kid to not look at his phone. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what are you doing at the dinner table? Are like you scrolling Facebook at the dinner table? Are you, you know, checking Instagram while you're waiting for a table at a restaurant? Then why are you surprised that your kid's doing it? So I think this is as applicable for parents as it is for like pastors. That yes. if if we hope if we hope to lead people to have a better relationship with social media, we have to be reflecting on our own relationship with social media. I think of this, I have a two and a half year old daughter and I am embarrassed at the amount of time I spend scrolling my preferred social media platforms when I'm like hanging out, playing with her in the bonus mm-hmm. room above our garage. Um, and I've started to do what I can to try to like leave my phone away for when I'm doing those sorts of things and give her my full attention because yeah. she doesn't super notice yet, but she she will very, very soon. And so I want to be already trying to model as best as I can for my two and a half year old, even more so if you've got, you know, a 12 year old or a 16 year old. Yeah. You, in the introductory comments, say something that is, it's it's quite a, a weighty statement. You say, arguably, social media is the most pervasive discipleship force in the world right now. To someone who hears that and is somewhat skeptical, thinks maybe it's exaggerating, what would you say in support of that claim? The main reason I feel pretty comfortable putting that claim in print is you just need to look at time. Hmm. Um, last I saw, I don't think this has changed since I put it in the book. The average internet user spends two and a half hours per day on social media, hmm. two and a half hours a day on social media. So if you consider the average person's day, you know, a 25 year old, person who's not in school anymore is an adult. They probably spend seven to nine hours a day sleeping, six to eight hours a day sleeping, about eight to nine hours a day working. So now you've got, you know, 16 hours of a 24 hour day covered. Mm -hmm. So you've got eight hours left in a day, two and a half hours of that on average, two and a half hours of someone's day is spent engaging with social media. You don't spend two and a half hours a day eating. Um, you don't spend two and a half hours a day reading your Bible. You might, if if you are a really avid reader, you might spend two and a half hours a day reading. Period. That would be a lot. I mean, you would mm-hmm. be a very, a very active reader. You might, if you, you know, especially if you're a young single person or a young married person. I'm. There were many times when I was 25 years old before we had our daughter that my wife and I would spend two and a half hours watching a TV show or something or a movie. You know, we we watched all seven seasons of the West Wing far faster than I would recommend anybody. So you don't spend two and a half hours a day doing much. Really working and sleeping are the two Mm -hmm. things you do for more than two and a half hours a day. So if the average American internet user, average internet user around the world spends two and a half hours a day on social media, that's more than they do basically anything except work and sleep. Mm -hmm. So when you consider how much time, just look at the number of hours and you think of how are people shaped? People are shaped by what they do. Now we're mm-hmm. not shaped by our sleep per se. We're shaped perhaps by how much sleep we get. Obviously, right. um, you're shaped by your job. You know your work environment and the the culture in which you work. I mean, if you work in a toxic work environment, it just drains you and it can make you cynical and bitter. Right. If you work in a really great environment, if you love your job, it can really overflow. That joy and that fulfillment can really overflow to other aspects of your life. Um, so these things that we spend a lot of time doing affect us. If we spend two and a half hours a day scrolling funny TikTok videos or how to fix it YouTube videos or 
you know, pristine Instagram influencer images and things like that, it's going to start to shape how we see the world. Yeah. And so really, I think I think our worldview is predominantly shaped by how we spend our time. And right. if you spend two and a half hours a day on average engaging on social media, it's inevitably going to shape your worldview. Um, and when you consider that the Probably, I think most pastors would say there's probably research out there around this idea. I know there is. Lifeway Research has done plenty of research around this. I know that like the hyperactive church member is probably in in doing church activities two and a half hours a week. That's that's like your most active church member is probably doing church activities two and a half hours a week, and then they're spending two and a half hours a day on social media. So I think if you consider uh, what changes us two and a half hours a day doing social media is definitely going to be discipling people. If you just think of discipleship as character and worldview formation at its core, you know. Right. Yeah. And when you talk about how it is that our our worldview is shaped by how it is that we spend our time, sometimes when people hear worldview, they think of it primarily, maybe exclusively, in terms of the intellectual messages that we're getting. One of the things that you are emphatic about is that social media changes not only our, as you say, not only our brains, but our hearts. And you say that social media changes how we think, how we feel, and how we believe. And that is uh, what you spend the rest of the book on, looking at how it is that in many respects, social media platforms are, as you call them, behavior modification platforms, that that there is an intent on the part of those who are creating and operating these to form us in particular ways. What if the pastor or the Christian leader who themselves is not involved in social media, and you've already touched on this somewhat, but why is it important for them to understand this formative aspect? Totally. That's a great question. Early on in the book, I have a sort of spectrum a little. There are very few pictures or illustrations in the book, but there is one toward the beginning that explains the sort of wrong ways we approach social media. And I like this is an answer to your question. I promise it'll take a second to get there. But um, I think there are two wrong ways that we, I mean, there are many, but at the at the most foundational level, there are two wrong ways we approach social media. And they're on kind of two ends of a spectrum. On one end, and this is the least common, but it is a thing, um, is passive ignorance. Mm-hmm. Passive ignorance with regard to social media is generally more common among older generations of people, people who social media came in in the waning hours and years of their lives, you know, when social media came about when they were 50 or 60 and you know, they they lived the vast majority of their life without this massive media phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, passive ignorance is tends to be most common among that group. And this mentality kind of has the attitude towards social media that this is irrelevant. Social media is not a big deal. It's a fad. It's going to go away. We shouldn't be devoting our time and attention to it. And I don't really care, you know, if it was a pastor per se, or even a community group leader, um, I don't really care how much people use social media because it'll be gone soon enough anyway, and it doesn't really matter. That would be passive ignorance. And they, this person saying that is certainly not going to be using social media themselves, and they mm-hmm. think that uh, it's just kind of here and it'll be gone and it's not that big of a deal. That used to be com- – I mean, that was a very common mentality as recently as 10 years ago. When mm-hmm. I took my first job working social media – just out of college, we had a very well-meaning family member who was like, is that really smart? Like, is that going to be around for very long? And, you know, this is in 2013. Um, and so that was very common back then. And it still is to some to some degree, uh, this sort of passive ignorance. Let it go. Who cares? The other end of the spectrum, which is far more common and far more insidious, is uncritical embrace, an uncritical embrace of social media, where any new feature, any new platform comes along. Oh, Instagram wants my location now so that it can tell me what the, you know, I can add a little sticker to my Instagram story to say what the temperature is where I'm at. Oh, cool. Like I'll give it my location. Why not? That seems like such a cool little feature. You know, we we add, we, we just kind of were early adopters to anything and everything that comes. I'm prone to this. Um, you know, before I really started paying attention to 
how social media works and how it can negatively affect us. I just was like, oh, I want to try that. Oh, that's new. I'd like to give that a shot. And that's part of why I'm where I am today because I, you know, I early adopt these things and learn about them and, and investigate them. But I think if we uncritically embrace things and we just leave note, we, we say, yeah, I want to have notifications on for the Papa John's app. I like, I want to have notifications on. I mean, this is not quite social media in the way we think about it, but of course I want to have notifications on for the YouTube app so that I can see every single time somebody I subscribe to posts a video. Um, we just say yes to everything. We just say yes to everything. This is what uncritical embraces. And this is where uh, the most common perspective and and kind of attitude and orientation towards social media where we just let social media happen to us. And we say, yeah, and bring it on. And I want to try that. And isn't this cool? And we're scrolling all the time. We have no screen time limits, anything. These are the two opposite ends of the spectrum from very not engaged with passive ignorance and very too much engaged with uncritical embrace. And what I advocate for throughout the book, kind of a foundational thesis of the book or or proposal, is that as faithful followers of Jesus trying to lead people to have a more healthy relationship with social media, we should pursue intentional engagement. Intentional engagement is what I kind of call like the middle ground between who cares and this is all amazing. Intentional engagement says, instead of letting social media happen to me, I want to control my relationship with social media. I want to be intentional about my relationship with social media because I think of social media like raging white water rapids that is just going to, if you just throw your raft out there and hop on, it's just going to carry you along and you're going to go wherever it wants you to go. The The algorithms are going to change how you think. You're going to be served ads and buy things as a result. You're just going to go with the flow and treat this rapid river like it's a lazy river and you're going to get eaten up probably. But I think if we really do recognize the social internet as the raging river that it is, we'll be a little bit more equipped to not let it just happen to us, but be careful about how we engage it. Now, I'm very careful to say this when I talk with pastors about social media or or church leaders, parents even. I don't think intentional engagement with social media and having this more healthy posture requires you to be active on social media. I don't think the faithful pastor needs to be tweeting. Certainly not. I don't think they even need to have a Facebook account. Now, do I think that can be helpful? Of course. I I think there there are myriad ways where being available to people on social media can be helpful, though I think pastors should also safeguard themselves in, in that regard. But that's another conversation. I think intentional engagement doesn't require opening a bunch of accounts on every conceivable platform. I think it means not to not to like pump my own book here, but like reading books like mine, reading books like from Jason Thacker or or from others who write on these subjects, reading articles on the internet about the changes that come to social media or major trends and things that are happening in the social media landscape. I think intentional engagement can just look like education and awareness even more than it looks like posting stories on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I just want pastors and lay church leaders who are leading small groups or serving in their student ministry or parents to recognize that the people they lead likely fall into the passive ignorance camp or the uncritical embrace camp. Um, And they themselves might find themselves in one of those two ends of the spectrum. And that they they should advocate in their own hearts and among the people they lead for a more intentional engagement so that they're not swept away in the raging waters of social media. Each of the chapters is devoted to looking at how it is that social media impacts a significant sphere of life. I wanted to touch on a few of them, give listeners a, a taste of what you're doing here. Your third chapter deals with a friendship. And you take a look at how the social internet warps, distorts our understanding of friendship. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. I think shallow, transient friendships, like, aren't that bad, like, aren't all bad. You know, I I think it's, we set ourselves up for a lot of heartbreak if we think every friendship needs to be a best friendship. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there are so I have so many friends, a dozen friends from back home in Indiana where I grew up, who for a season of life were like brothers to me, um, closer than brothers to me. And I haven't talked to half of them in four years. 
that doesn't mean I don't love them. And if they called me up and were coming through Nashville, that they couldn't stay at my house, if they needed a place to stay, it's just seasons of life change. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you pass in and out of each other's lives. And I think that's quite okay. But I think our relationship with social media does warp our understanding of friendship in unhealthy ways. The, the first one, and this is kind of like a lot of people joke about this, but it's, it's true. And I think it, I think it matters is that I think the social internet can make friendship a commodity and to, to commodify something as I mean, it is to attribute commercial value to something that should be appreciated for its inherent value. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples of this are like the commodification of human life in the, in the slave trade or in, in human trafficking, um, the commodification of holidays, such as like the commercialization of Christmas or things like that, or, or, or I remember being particularly sad about this one when I visited the commodification of natural wonders like Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you'll gaze in wonder at the falls and then uh, be afraid to look around you because there's just a bunch of janky T-shirt vendors and other things all around. But I think friendship has been commodified by the social Internet. And I think you know what I'm saying. You know what I mean if you're tracking with me because you've certainly said at some point, we're like real friends, not just like Facebook friends, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think, I don't think Facebook is like malicious. I think Facebook's malicious about some things, and that's not part of our conversation. But I don't think they're like maliciously trying to undermine our understanding of friendship. I just think that over time, whether we're collecting connections on LinkedIn or collecting friends on Facebook or even followers on Instagram and Twitter, we've come to sort of neglect the image of God in people for the sake of their internet relationship to us, yeah. whatever state that may be. And so I, I think I think our relationship with social media can commodify friendship in that way. Uh, secondly, I think we mistake clicks of affirmation for acts of love. Um, and so obviously this is related to the commodification of friendship, but love is at the core of friendship, especially Christian friendship. And I think one of the beauties of Christian friendship is that Christian friends may have similar hobbies or interests, or they may not, but their friendship is most deeply rooted in the gospel belief that they share. And I think that's one of the, like thinking back to my high school times, those guys, the, those dozen guys that stood with me at my wedding and and that I hung out with for hours and hours and hours when I was in high school and early college, those guys, like there were jocks among us, there were nerds among us, there were band kids among us, theater kids. We were all different. We had different interests and hobbies and things like that, but we all had this shared foundational belief in Christ as our savior. And that really bound us together in a special way. And I think when we start to reduce our understanding of friendships to how people engage with us online, whether they, whether or not they like our latest Instagram reel or how quickly they snap us back on Snapchat. And, and like a lot of people who may be listening are like, that's ridiculous. I would never, but this is where it it happens without you even trying, without even trying, you can start to think like, Oh, Hmm. That person hasn't messaged me back on Facebook. I wonder why. Are they like just like are they are they like giving me the silent treatment? Are they like you know are they upset at what I said? You can just really start to like overanalyze friendships based on social media metrics that yeah. you start to use as gauges of how deep your relationship is with people. And I just think that that seeps in. That's that's part of that phenomenon of social media happening to us without without like that's not something we think about it just kind of seeps in and happens and third and maybe finally um i think we believe if if we go down this path for too long we can start to believe that a digital connection can supplant an embodied connection um the term parasocial relationship was coined in 1956 by two psychologists who wanted a word to describe the mediated relationships that audience members felt with performers within mass media, specifically television at the time, which was really starting to boom. Um, And parasocial relationships are a problem because they foster the feeling of friendship and community without the benefits of it. And anybody who pays attention to like creator culture on social media has seen plenty of conversation about parasocial relationships within the last few years, because certain YouTubers, Instagram influencers, TikTokers at this point generate such followings and such rabid followings among their fans that people can start to feel like much like um you know in the 90s people used to feel like the friends on the show friends mm-hmm. were their friends 
Yeah. Um, or like people who watch a TV show for the over the course of a number of seasons and then weep when it's over because they feel like their friends have all died or something like that. <laughs> we can feel this sort of parasocial connection, this unreal pseudo friendship with people, famous people, influencers and the like through social media. And if we're not careful, again, this can just kind of happen to us without us trying Mm-hmm. is we can start to care more about the life of a famous vlogger than we care about the life of our next door neighbor. Yeah. Um, because that doesn't cost us anything. Our next door neighbor might ask us to help them wash their car or fix their trampoline when a storm rolls through and knocks it over. But that vlogger online is simply going to entertain us. And yeah. so we just it allows us to to consume in relationship rather than contribute to relationship. And I think um, I think that's another way, and, and that can be the final way we, we talk about how, how social media does warp our understanding of relationship. Yeah. You said earlier that you don't think that the platforms are necessarily trying to transform our conception of friendship, but I do think there's been a history of them exploiting our desire for connection. I was, I was thinking about uh, last time we talked, we talked about AOL. Uh, AOL, the buddy list, and Facebook, it's your friends on Facebook. And, uh, you know, there is this appeal to, you know, you use the word buddy ordinarily with someone that you're really close with. And friend, usually, as you were describing, is someone that you, you have a really significant relationship with. And to transfer those kinds of connotations to the digital world is effective. Because it, totally. it taps in, taps into something that is deeply seated in us. So, what kinds of things? Maybe one thing that you deal with in the book that a, a leader can do to promote and uh, encourage Christians to pursue real friendships. Yeah, I think there are so many things, and there are probably plenty of people who have better ideas than I have. Um, but I think one of the most effective things that I've seen. And, and especially in like student ministry, because that's a lot of my background. But I think this applies to small groups and churches in general. I really think it's helpful when churches create intentional, low stakes social environments. Hmm. Um, so I think the temptation for pastors and church leaders is to think of, you know, like I'm going to solve the community problem in my church with a sermon series or something. Or and that can certainly help. I don't think it's going to solve a problem. Or um, I think you know we'll do a pancake breakfast on Saturday morning, men's pancake breakfast. And I think those are great. I'm nothing mm-hmm. against that. Love pancakes, love men's events. That's <laughs> all great. But I think if you think about it this way, our enemy, if you will, is the reality that many Christians are attempting to find community and relationship through their addiction to social media platforms or their use of social media platforms. And this is a problem for several reasons we just talked about. But an hour or two of church programming every week or even every month can't hold a candle to nearly three hours a day that people are spending on social media. So you just got to think about time again. I know you're not typically supposed to fight fire with fire, but you really do have to fight time with time. And I think if churches want to help people gain a more healthy understanding of community, churches should encourage more low stakes social environments that feel less like events and more like, uh, sanctioned hangout times, if you will, where, mm-hmm. where, um, like, I, I think my, my church just does this very well, where like, not everything is, you know, some event that's on the calendar, but, but we encourage and have a culture of people who go out to lunch together, get coffee together, watch football together, play video games together, have board game nights, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I joke about this in the book that like, maybe this isn't for you or your church, but it's just one practical implementation is maybe you establish like a fellowship team at your church, right? A, you know, cheesy old school Christian name fellowship team, where instead of being about coffee on su- Sunday mornings with donuts, though, that's all good too. And I talk about the importance of the old school church coffee hour, which I, I wish we still maintained in a lot of our more modern evangelical churches. Oh yes. But instead of, instead of the fellowship team focusing on that, maybe it's just like a group of people that's kind of like a deacon group or something where they're in charge of, trying to be the social butterflies that get to know a lot of people and kind of be mm-hmm. social connectors, like social networkers where, um, and I'm talking real life, like embodied ones, not internet ones where, you know, they, they hear that Steve and Adam both love Marvel movies and they, but Steve and Adam don't know each other. So they're like, Hey, you guys should, you know, this person who's on the fellowship team, we'll call him John. He's like, uh, 
Steve, you love Marvel movies. Meet my friend Adam. He loves Marvel movies too. You guys should get together and like, you know, play the latest Marvel video game or go see the newest Marvel movie that's coming out. You guys, let me, let me, let me introduce you to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think a sort of team like that, that's not, you know, could, I often hear of church connection teams who are often about like getting new people involved. And this could be the same kind of group of people where you just maybe have a, a designated small group where, Hey, your goal, your guys's goal is to get to know as many people as possible and try to make just some sort of social matchmaking connections where you learn about different things people are interested in and encourage them to get together around those things. And I think when we encourage those low stakes, social environment, get togethers, um, it can be a little bit more effective than just like having this church social event once or twice a month where everybody goes, oh, I should probably go over to that man- that pancake breakfast or whatever. Um, and it can feel just a little bit more organic, I guess. Yeah, that would help if uh, people could be intentional about connecting people with similar interests and, and so forth and not seeing the necessity to have a number of programs, formal programs. I like the way you worded low stake environment. You you spoke to a lot of pastors in your research for this. And in one section of the book, you asked a number of leaders, can you tell me how you have seen social media affect the people at your church? You tried to keep the question as unloaded as possible and just hear what they had to say back. And what was it that um, was the most common response that you got from pastors in response to that? As I recall, the most common response, and in fact, I think it was 99, if not 100% of them, said that they had experienced themselves, church members, being led astray by conspiracy theories or or deception of some kind, not necessarily mm-hmm. some organized conspiracy theory that that is like you know that you could name that you would recognize but more so being led astray by what's commonly called fake news or um untruth because like the and what would f- commonly follow this conversation via email or by phone with a pastor was um yeah like I'd have people come up to me after church on Sunday after I preach my sermon and say pastor did you hear about XYZ this week I saw it on Facebook and I can't believe you wouldn't talk about it and the pastor would be like, what are you talking about? And and then they the person would go on to explain why this is real and it's important. And if like since you didn't talk about it, you must you must not believe it or you must believe this false thing, you know, according to them. And and I had a handful of pastors who, who after they said, you know, I deal with a lot of conspiratorial thought or or um fake, you know, uh deception, people who have been deceived often followed it up with just very specific examples of how it was often after church on a Sunday, they would be contacted by email or in person by someone who said, Hey, I saw this, you know, you should talk about it. Or why didn't you talk about it? And that was, I, as I recall, the most common response that I got. And I expected pastors, especially given that, you know, I wrote this book coming out like, you know, toward the tail end of the most intense time of COVID and, following the 2020 election and all of the things that followed that I expected pastors to some of them to tell me that, yeah, I've dealt with some conspiracy theories or QAnon kind of stuff in my church. I did not expect almost everyone, if not everyone to list that as a issue and a matter that they dealt with, but yeah, to a T. Um, and so for a while I was like, I don't know if this even merits a full chapter before I had all these conversations. I was like, I, maybe I just have a chapter on discernment and I don't have a conspiracy theory chapter. And eventually after talking with all of them, I was like, I can't not have a chapter totally dedicated to how do you lead people who are wrestling with conspiracy theories in their relationship with social media? Um, and so, so yeah, chapter 12 is totally dedicated to that exact thing. Yeah. You used a term in that chapter that I, I wrote in my margin. And I said, this uh, this is good. Uh, you refer to evangelical tabloidism. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Man, that's a good question. And that is a good term. It's like sometimes, you know, I wrote this book. I wrote this book so long ago and you come back and, <laughs> I, you know, I forget about little things like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is. That's good. That's, you know, uh, Chris from 12 months ago. That was a good one. Um, yeah. Evangelical tabloidism. It's that's one of those things where it's like, how do I define this without being mean? And also, 
if you know what I'm talking about, you don't even need a definition. It's like when you know it, when you see it, you know it. When you know it, yeah, you know I, it. I, when it. I read uh, it, I said, I, I know what he's talking about, but if you yeah. give, give it your How best you shot to, to try this? to. Um, people who gossip about matters of national or global evangelicalism on the internet as if they matter to everyone when mm. really they shouldn't matter to many of us at all. So the best, like the best example of this is just like the wildfire of conversations that happen whenever any semi well-known to famous pastor like falls morally. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I'm not going to name them cause I don't want to like, I don't want to upset anybody, but anybody who's listening can probably think of one to five or more. Sure well-known pastors or Christian leaders in the last five years who have had some major moral failing that's been revealed or, or has come to light. And those things are important. And the fact that they happen is bad and we should grieve them. And, and, but when those things happen, if a pastor in Los Angeles has some major moral failing, and I'm sitting here at my home office desk in Nashville, Tennessee, and some pastor in Los Angeles has a moral failing that's just scandalous. And there's an article in a Christian magazine or whatever. And it just talks about all these ways that he abused his position or, or whatever. He, he didn't do anything criminal, but he, you know, he was just not a good pastor and, and was kicked out of his job. I should, when I see something like that, I should be like, that's really sad. And then go on with my life. Mm-hmm. What probably shouldn't happen is I probably shouldn't share that article on Twitter and then say, can you believe this happened? I can't, how terrible this person is. And then somebody's somebody retweets mine is like, yeah, this person's awful. And then like, I respond to somebody who tweets at me and, or, or, you know, maybe messages me on Facebook and is like, yeah, isn't that person so awful? How could they do that for so long? And we just like start talking about this horrible moral failing this pastor in Los Angeles had. And here I am sitting at my desk in Nashville, Tennessee, working a job, going to a church whose pastor, by the grace of God, hasn't had an awful moral failing and living my life, trying to walk the way of faithfulness, following Jesus Christ, my Lord. By what, by what measure, for what reason, in any way, does the pastor who fell in Los Angeles matter to me? For I can answer that. For, I can answer my own question. For no good reason. Because other people are talking about it, and I would say gossiping about it on social media because of fame and celebrity. I have this, I think I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I'm sure I also cut some of it because it's not totally relevant. I am endlessly frustrated by how obsessed we are with celebrity as a culture in general, but especially within evangelicalism. And I think that we flip out about random pastor across the country who has a moral failing not because it affects us at all or because we can do anything about it, but, but but because we're infatuated with fame and celebrity, and it's really no better than wondering who Leo's dating now. Um, and so I, I really think that like I there's much to be said, and I say a little bit of it in the book about accountability or like um, public accountability or watch bloggers and things like that. Um, and there's plenty that could be said about those things. And like I said, I say a little bit about that. Um, but I just think we should be really careful about how much we engage with these sorts of things online and ask ourselves, like, how much does this stuff really matter to me? And uh, am, am I letting it really sort of become a version of gossip in my life? Yeah. Well, let's let's follow through with that idea of fame, because I agree with you, there is uh, an infatuation with it, an obsession about it, and yet there's also a craving for it. And one of the comments that you had in your chapter on living peaceably, I believe, you said the internet is more powerful than television because effectively everyone has their own show. I thought that was a profound sentence. And you have another chapter in which you're dealing with humility and being mindful of the ways in which social media plays to our pride. But uh, could you say a little bit about this idea of with social media, everyone has their own show. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about how it's as though we are the central figures in our own movies. And 
What's at work there? And maybe what's one idea that you would have for leaders to try to counter that and cultivate humility in folks? So I think the easiest way that I can explain that the internet's more powerful than television because effectively everyone has their own show is just from my own lived experience. Hmm. Um, we're recording this here in, in the middle of January, and I'm trying to be a good author and much to my horror have begun recording Instagram reels on an almost <laughs> daily basis of myself. I love going on podcasts and doing radio. I don't love getting on video and recording video of myself. I'd rather speak to a room of 4,000 people than get on video. It's just weird. I don't know. It just mm-hmm. feels very disembodied and awkward. Um, but I bought a little, I bought a tripod and I said, you know what? I'm going to try to be a good author and do this video thing. I hear it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've started recording Instagram reels, 90 second versions of various things I write about in this book, my other book, my newsletter, or just things I'm thinking, you know, I'm not doing some fancy jump cuts and interesting cover mm-hmm. shots and all that. I'm just recording video. I'm very boring. But if I was releasing this book in 1999, I could never get on video and speak to hundreds of people five times a week. It doesn't happen. Now, if I had a really good publicist who had a really good connection with somebody who owns a television station or is a host of a television show, I could have, you know, maybe got on a TV show and reached 10,000 people in a single afternoon. But that's, you know, for somebody like me releasing a book in 1999, if we were going back in time, that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so today, though, today, I've got, you know, I've got a few hundred Instagram followers and the way Instagram does reels of people who don't even follow me could see my, could see my videos. And I have my own little television channel where I can record 90 second shows as often as I want. And I happen to do one every day and it's a little channel for myself. And so I think that, I mean, just very literally, mm-hmm. whether you set up a YouTube channel or you record the occasional TikTok or whatever else, you have the ability to create your own little talk show um, mm-hmm. into whatever. I think that's kind of cool. Um, obviously, some people use it for ill and and it can get unhealthy. Uh, but I think it's kind of cool to be able to have the ability to do that. I think, though, when you do that, um, like I've been checking the Instagram app a whole lot more in the last week since I started doing that than I did the week prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, you have to be careful when you do things like this to not let it become all consuming and not yeah. let it become like you really are the star of a movie that is your life. Because really we, we, for, for those of us who are, who are believers, we are not the main characters of our lives. Christ is the main character of our life. And we, we are supporting actors in it, I guess you could say. And so mm-hmm. I think it's important for, for pastors, church leaders, even parents to encourage humility in a social media culture, I guess, that we live in an environment. Um, And I think there are a lot of different ways this can happen. I think, again, kind of to the beginning of our conversation, it should be modeled like Mm -hmm. a pastor who encourages people to humility, but is constantly trying to get more famous in one way or another is going to have a hard time. You know, that message is going to be a little bit difficult for him. Mm -hmm. Um, I think pointing people to Jesus is the perfect example of humility uh, is is obviously a good idea, um, as we see in Philippians 2, I think, which is the best picture we have of Christ's perfect humility. And then finally, perhaps most practically, or like a, you know, a way that I've I have seen work well is remind people that life is about sacrificing for others, not defeating them. Mm. Because social media inherently is a sort of competition. And yes. I, I'm a competitive person. And I think even if we don't see ourselves competing with others, we are all kind of competing for attention. I mean, everybody only has 24 hours a day of, of attention. And most of that, again, is taken up by sleep or work or, or other things. And so we're all kind of competing for the same buckets of attention. And I think it's really important for us as we're creating content online or, or just going about our lives in general to see other people as bearers of the image of God for whom we can sacrifice rather mm-hmm. than other things to be conquered and yeah. other things to be defeated. Um, and so I think we sh- we shouldn't see life as a competition. There are certain aspects of my life I do see as a competition. Like I want to, mm-hmm. I want to sell a lot of books, and I want to like compete with myself. I compete with myself a lot. Like I want to, mm-hmm. I want to, you know, lift more weight at the gym tomorrow than I did today. And and I think that you know, there's some element of competition that can be very healthy, and and when when corralled can be very good. But I think when we start to compete sort of socially, and we start to see like, oh man. My latest Instagram reel only got 300 views and this person who's doing something similar got 3,000. Like, what am I doing wrong? And we can start to resent that person or even think less of ourselves. And so I think 
as we lead people, remind them that, hey, these other people that you're competing with, they're they're bearers of the image of God too. And, and we should be sacrificing for them, not trying to defeat them in some sort of pointless game. Yeah. Social media could easily entice us with competition and related to that covetousness. Well, your your last chapter is uh, a fitting conclusion, and we can wrap up here. The, the, the final chapter deals with redirecting worship. And I just want to read something that you say there. People attend worship services on their phones every day when they open their favorite apps. They worship influencers. They worship lifestyles. They worship entertainers. The only practical hope we have as we attempt to combat the prevalence of idolatry in our relationship with social media is to worship God at least as frequently as we use social media. And there is just so much in that concluding chapter that is so rich, and I really appreciated it. And you also say there, daily discipleship by social media is best fought with daily times with God. And I don't know if you wanted to say anything with respect to that idea of worship, but if so, please do. Yeah, my pastor, and I say this, I think, a little bit in the sort of epilogue that we included at the end of the book, right after that final chapter. Um, my pastor is really funny dude, really brilliant, one of the most well-read people I know, um, widely, just super widely well-read. He He jokes that every Christian book, every Christian book, eventually ends by saying, just read your Bible and pray more. <laughs> and <laughs> as somebody who works in Christian publishing, he's totally right. Maybe not every <laughs> book, but like 75% of them is just like, you just read this 200 page book. Now go read your Bible and pray. <laughs> um, and I, I think like, you know, as I come to the conclusion of mine, I find myself encouraging the reader to do just that. I think, like I said earlier in my conversation with you, we're often told not to fight fire with fire. But as we consider, look, the core problem that my book's trying to address is people are discipled by social media and shaped by social media more than they're shaped by a lot of other things. In some cases, probably more than anything else. And if you're a pastor, a small group leader like myself, a youth ministry leader like myself, a parent like myself, though I'm not a parent of a social media using person. Mm -hmm. um, if if you are a leader and a discipler of, of any kind where you care about the shepherding of someone's soul to become more like Christ and to cling to Jesus, the number one fight you're likely trying to fight is the amount of time and outsized influence that social media and the content on these platforms have on the people in your care. Like, mm -hmm. like I, I don't want to get into details because I'm, I'm currently discipling students who are, who I, I could, I could list some, some like actual situations that I don't, I don't want to like reveal those things, but like there are some of the brightest, most amazing students I've ever worked with in all of my student ministry who are Brilliant, it, not only in like relationship with the Lord, but just like also just like book smart, very brilliant people who I think don't know how much they're being shaped by like YouTubers they watch. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's heartbreaking when you see this kind of thing. And it's like no like eight week sermon series is going to break someone of that. Now, maybe look, the Holy Spirit can work through any of that. I'm, I, mm -hmm. I'm not going to limit the work of the spirit here. But just practically speaking, like a little one-time thing here or a hard, one hard conversation at the dinner table, or we need to create cultures and environments where we start to fight time with time, where we consider the people I love are spending about two and a half hours a day using social media. We need to start encouraging them to spend more time doing other things that shape their hearts and minds and souls that maybe point them more toward the Lord and less toward themselves or other people. And yeah. I think that most pastors would probably agree with me that we have a problem of Christians not reading their Bible enough and praying enough. And I think if we hope to address anything related to people we love's relationship with social media, we have to start with how much time are they spending in the word and how much time are they praying? Now, do I think we're going to get people practically to spend two and a half hours a day reading the Bible and praying? No. I, I mean, I probably spend 35 to 45 minutes a day doing those things. 
but that's something. And that starts to push back the sort of darkness that can seep in when we spend so much time online. And so I think, I think that's, you know, kind of how I wanted to conclude that chapter was, look, you're not, you're not going to get people to show up to the church building two and a half hours a day, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and pastors wouldn't even want that. Um, but if you can get people engaging in matters of faith for a little bit more time and a little bit closer to the amount of time they're spending scrolling their favorite social media platforms, you might start to be onto something. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your newsletter. Before we go, if people want to follow some of your musings on things related to technology, social media, Christian life, and discipleship, and so forth, where can they do that? Yeah, you can find it at termsofservice.social. I'm on Twitter at Chris Martin 17 Instagram, which I guess I'm now talking about too, even though I usually connected with friends on Instagram, but uh, I create Instagram reels. So videos about these things now too, at Chris Martin 17 on both Twitter and Instagram, if you're more into that sort of thing. But the newsletter is termsofservice.social, or if you search terms of service, Chris Martin, you'll find that and or the book. Okay. Again, the book is The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead by Chris Martin, published by Moody Press. It's a book that deals, as you said, with some real darkness, but it doesn't stay there. There's a lot of light for those in various positions of leadership, whether they are pastors, teachers, small group leaders, or parents. I hope many people will pick it up and put into practice some of the ideas you share. I think you have again provided the body of Christ with a very valuable tool. So thank you for your efforts. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And yeah, man, I I don't like talking about my books a whole lot. And it's just a weird thing that comes sometimes with writing this stuff. But even after just talking with you, I'm I'm like, yeah, I think this is really helpful. So I hope that anybody listening was helped not only by our conversation, but maybe sees a need for for picking up the book for either themselves or other leaders in their lives. And yeah, definitely. I love chatting with folks who engage with the books or even my other writings. So feel free to reach out to me anywhere. And I'm, I'd be happy to chat with any of you. Great. Well, thanks again for the time, Chris. It was a delight to talk with you again. Look forward to the next time. Thanks. 